0: Hello, and welcome back to Two Bar Stools and a Knife, talking about the hospitality industry, then, now, and in the future. From FIU Chaplin School of Hospitality and Tourism Management and the Bacardi Center of Excellence, I am Professor Nathan Dodge, normally joined by Professor Brian Connors and Chef John Noble Massey. However, Brian's off in Rhode Island somewhere, and we can't get in touch with him. So, his bar stool is currently being occupied by our buddy, Bacardi's own Gabe Arrutia
1: gay John, yes. how's it going, guys?
0: Yes. Oh man, Great. thanks
1: for yeah. having me. Your arms are rolling so much better, Nathan. I know, we, I know. You
2: know I'm, I can't I'm, practicing,
0: I'm practicing, practicing every day. Yeah. Um, we are in the middle of rum month, so we're gonna be joined later on by James Beard Award winner and co-founder of Banks Rum, Jim Meehan. But before we move on, because Brian's not here, we can't really have him talk about Bacardi Center of Excellence. So I guess I will channel Brian. Bacardi teaches more than 1,500 courses taken already. (laughs) Um, That was my Brian impression. Uh, Bacardi Talks, we, uh, we just had one last week with Elizabeth Blau. If you missed it, it will be on Two Bar Stools and a Knife podcast. So as soon as you're done listening to this episode, you can listen to that as well. However, October 8th, we'll be having Bacardi Talks number three with another legendary restaurant tour. So mark your calendars now. That's going to be pretty awesome. Bacardi Classroom is coming, is done, but who knows what fall is going to bring us. I have no idea what classes are going to be like. If we're going back, I keep being told we are, so we are. Um, so if you're on campus, come by, check out the new Bacardi Classroom. It is really awesome. Did I miss anything, guys? I think I'm good. All right. Before I get started, I wanted to mention one more thing. Sherry German, who was on the show a few weeks ago, keeps having these amazing wine auctions that benefit different charities. Um, I got a case of rosé yesterday for about 225 bucks. These are all award-winning bottles. They were signed. Really cool. So definitely check out. I'll have the link to her next auction up on the uh, Two Bar Stools and a Knife Facebook page, so make sure you check it out. What else is going on? Uh, John, anything new, exciting happening in John world?
1: I, you know, I was just thrilled. You know, we called for people to come on. And uh, rate our show, and we went from four reviews to five. So Woo-hoo! I want to send a big, a big shout out to my sister Andrea uh, <laughs> for our, uh, to, for joining our each of our moms and your dad. So now we're up to five, five reviews. So I'm. Well, my dad I, said that
0: he wasn't one of the reviews, so it could have been someone else. I don't know. Maybe it was our our, our French person. Um, that'd be kind
1: of cool. Oh, that's, uh, yes, bonjour, bonjour to the French people. Bonjour.
0: Friend. We still don't know who it is. Ooh. And Gabe, what's going on uh, with you? How's life? What you drinking? Oh, I, I saw you, you're drinking something in the 18
2: year old Scotch whiskey. But we, we've been digging our nails pretty deep for uh, Rum Month. So we're seeing some pretty cool things happen with uh, the Facundo Rum Collection, Santa Teresa, um, also Havana Club. So they're doing a whole bunch of collaborations. I've seen anything from flan, Cuban flan dessert uh, filled with rum or infused with rum to to popsicles to frozen pina coladas. Mm-hmm. So they're 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 digging their nails deep on, on this rum one. So we're pretty excited to be right at the heart of it. Because yeah, uh, Miami is of all a happy drinker.
0: Yeah, Bacardi probably did something good with the rum one. And yeah, I think they so probably yeah. did. Yeah. All right. So, like I said, James Beard Award winner, author, mixologist, bartender, bar owner, co-founder of Banks Rum. We've got Jim Meehan here. Hi, Jim. How's it going? It's great.
3: I wanted awesome. to jump in about the five reviews, but I but you hadn't introduced me yet. So, Sorry, well, tell more. about
0: wait, the Oh, uh, no. Gabe is showing off your books right now. <laughs> All right. Love you, Love
3: you Gabe. Again.
0: So, what about the fifth review?
3: Yes. Well, I just feel like these things are important, you know, getting re- these reviews are important, especially when you just have five. Sometimes someone weighs in with some, some really unfair negative criticism and, and, and a bad review when you're only at five reviews can just tank the whole ship. So I, I just, I'm really wishing you guys well. I hope that you can stack up a few more uh, great reviews so that uh, in the event that anyone comes at you hard, that really it's not going to affect your score because it's obviously a great show you guys are putting on.
0: Yeah. Fingers crossed. We we really do we enjoy appreciate that. We appreciate yeah. your comments. Thank you. So uh, let's just jump in. Johnny boy, what were yeah. you going to talk to Jay yeah.
1: about? Now, you know, I'm in comparison Nathan and, and, and Gabe, our two barstools. I'm the knife. I'm the culinary guy. When I, you know, we haven't met yet. So looking forward to having you on campus or interacting with our students. So this is our first opportunity to, to chat. And, and when I think of James Beard Award winners, I think of, I, I, you know, I think, I think of food, I think of dining, I, 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 I think of those things. And while there, there is no, I know you aren't part of the judging committee, right, that, that, that led to your award, but if you could highlight just one or two things that, that you can share with our students, our listeners, that made your bar program that you won the award for outstanding.
3: Yeah. So I guess my first experience with the James Beard Foundation or the James Beard Award in particular was having dinner at uh, an old friend G Park's uh, apartment in New York. And she had a James Beard Award on her wall. And I'd, I'd never seen one. It looked really fancy. And I asked her about it. And she was the producer many years ago of CBS's Morning uh, Chef on a Shoestring series where she would bring on chefs to talk about their their food and, and do demos and that was my first awareness of the award. And then, obviously, I, later I started working for restaurateurs like Danny Meyer, who has racked up quite a few of them and, and traveled mm-hmm. around the country and, and seen them on the walls of various hallowed establishments. And to make a long story short, um, in 2012 was the first year that the James Beard Foundation, which has been giving out these awards for, I think, over 25 years decided to add an outstanding bar program award to supplement their outstanding wine program award. And um, PDT was very fortunate. I think along with, it was Bar Agricole, which won either last year or the year before. I think there were a number of other programs that were up for it and we were the first to win. And I guess all I'll say is that, you know, I have no idea how we won. I left the auditorium that night, waiting for someone to snatch it right off my neck. But I'll say that after working, after opening the Pegu Club in 2005 with Audrey Saunders, who's one of Dale DeGroff's proteges, and it really sort of immersing myself in in her teachings, which kind of came from Dale in the Rainbow Room and sort of like elevated cocktail service from from, from fine dining establishments or fine drinking establishments like Bemelmans uptown in New York. I tried to integrate that sort of club service for lack of a better term with the, the sort of s- the conventions that I had gathered working in the tavern of Gramercy Tavern where we were serving many different wines and spirits and beers along with uh, multiple course meals with, with a great cheese program. And so my idea was to bring the best of America, New American Dining conventions and the best of contemporary modern club service to the same venue in PDT and to try to bring some more culinary sensibilities to the drinks program. And we were very fortunate in our early years. PDT is attached to a hot dog stand called Crip Dogs. And I, in the absence of a chef, we decided, my opening team and I, John Darragon and Don Lee, to reach out to local chefs in each village, which was an emerging sort of uh, neighborhood in, in Manhattan, to create hot dogs for us to serve at PVT. So our our first hot dog was a chain dog with kimchi from Momofuku, and then we got deep fried mayo from Wiley Dufresne, and then we supplemented it with chili and and toppings from Sue Torres at Sueños, and sort of really trying to highlight what was going on in the East Village and collaborating with chefs. This led to the chefs coming and then drinking, and then when they were entertaining other chefs from out of town, the bar kind of became a chef hangout. So I have no idea how we won or why we won, but I suspect that trying to incorporate chefs and, and food in this way, as well as bringing these different conventions of service together in one space, helped sort of cement our, our sort of lineage or our style.
1: Oh, and Jim, I know you're making Nathan hungry. <laughs> yeah, and I like a hot dog. Gabe, what were you going to say?
3: No, I was
2: going to say, Jim, was, was that kind of embraced right away? Was it a slow build? How did you know? maybe the consumers outside of the industry embrace PDT as they embrace it now?
3: The thing that's so unfair um, with respect to everything else I've done in my career is that most everything we did at PDT just worked. I wouldn't say embrace is a strong term, but People love that you know they love the chef hot dogs they they the biggest sort of i think push points for PDT was the getting people to understand a reservation policy was very challenging. milk and honey had done it years before us, but getting people to understand that they needed a reservation for the tables was a was a big lift in the beginning um but other than that, I feel like at the, you know two thousand and eight was right around the financial crash there was a lot of a lot of the sort of like opulent kind of big C and drinking establishments and restaurants were struggling and a, and, a, and a humble little hole in the wall that served really kind of better than you could ever imagine. Junk food with these craft cocktails was just the balm that people sort of wanted to soothe themselves with.
0: That's excellent. No, I was just going to say, um, we, we jumped right into James Beard Award, but we didn't even get into... Who is Jim Meehan? Like, really, can yeah. you tell about like, where you came from, where did you start, where you are now, what's going on? Yeah, so
3: I grew up right outside of Chicago in Oak Park in River Forest, Illinois, famously where Hemingway grew up, and then went to college in Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, started working as a freshman in college for books and beer money at a tavern called State Street Brats, which has been around since the 50s. Work my way from the door to the grill to bar backing to bartending and was one of the managers by the time I was 20. And by the time I was 22, I kind of fell in love with the industry. I loved um, the creativity in bartending. I loved the physicality of it. I loved, I realized much later in life, but I now know that I'm an introvert. And as an introverted person, I loved sort of having this extroverted work life, even that I didn't have to work hard to connect with people over. And I love the sort of working in a bar, you encounter people from all different industries and and backgrounds. And it's really a sort of very dynamic work environment. So when I was the tender old uh, young age of 22, I decided I wanted to be a bartender when I grew up and started reading about this guy named Dale DeGroff in New York around that time, who had opened a bar called Blackbird, and reading about his uh, protege, Audrey Saunders. And I was in Madison. I ended up graduating with two degrees, uh, one in English literature and the other in African-American studies after my failed attempt to become a medical doctor. And <laughs> after seven years in Madison, which was amazing, I, I, I moved to New York to look for mentorship and growth. Landed nine months after 9-11 in the restaurant business, uh, almost became a sommelier when I went to Milk and Honey for the first time in 2003. And Experienced my first what we now call craft cocktail uh, served by Joseph Schwartz and Toby Maloney and sort of had an aha moment, you know, was blown away by the hand carved ice, by the fresh juice and the great hospitality and, and the room and decided to forego the sommelier route and embrace what was going on there and went on to later, as I said, open the Pegu Club in 2005, moved over to Gramercy Tavern uh, as well, where I ended up kind of focusing most of my time as the head bartender. Open PDT in 2007. And then from there, as I said, just a lot a lot of success is a byproduct. A lot of people who are quote unquote successful will, some will say that it's it's all hard work and sort of this bootstrapping. But for me, I've found that a lot of it has been, of course, hard work and and maybe some good sense, some good wits about you. But A lot of it has been timing and luck. Uh, And I found that at PDT, we were the right concept at the right time. And I felt, I feel very fortunate for what happened for me there. And from there, a number, I I was working with great people and a lot of awards started kind of tumbling in and those awards led to different opportunities. I wrote my first cocktail book, the PDT cocktail book, uh, after winning a couple of major international awards. I Before that, I had edited eight editions of Food & Wine's cocktail book and four editions of Mr. Boston's Bartender's Guide. 2008 was when I met one of the founders of Banks Rum and became involved in helping to create what is now uh, our sort of award-winning, very small line of our five island white rum and our seven golden blend gold rum. And then many other opportunities created... um a bar bag and a roll up and two different cocktail apps and wrote a second book in 2017. Uh, I just launched a set of cocktail spoons today with cocktail kingdom. I have a grapefruit soda with East Imperial and sort of embarked on a lot of sort of product oriented design initiatives. So that's sort of, I guess, who I am. I have a lot of, I'm interested in everything with, with that is related to our culture. I feel like one of the things I, I, thought a about, lot about in my in college as an african-american studies major who grew up listening to rap music in the 90s is how rap music kind of became uh hip-hop culture and i've always looked at drinks not just as a a either a form of liquid entertainment or as just a specific culinary art but as a culture that has a a design and decor and a soundtrack and, and a sense of Personal swagger, and I've always tried to find ways to sort of identify what 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 way I fit into that, and and how it manifests itself in many different forms. If that makes sense,
0: it does. It sounds like you, you know, kind of sit around, not really work very hard. But
3: you know, some I'm people have chilling.
0: to. Work. Yeah, you like you like to chill. And, you know, just hang out. Um, that's pretty cool. That's a that's an amazing career, and. You're about my age, so I'm kind of jealous. Of how much stuff you've done compared to you know.
3: Well, once again, I feel very. It's like luck and timing.
0: Yeah, it's pretty cool, and you know, it's great that you're you're willing to say that it
3: is luck and timing. Because like, like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm not. So i Gabe. Can tell you, I'm no good oh. at what I do. Oh my
1: God, <laughs> come on. Well, I, I love the fact that you're working with a super premium uh, product like banks, and uh, I think if you were to reflect on the things that all of the things that you've done to kind of lead to that, that, that partnership, that, that opportunity that you have right now, what things kind of within your toolkit have enabled you to be so successful with, with the banks, uh, work that you're doing?
3: I think that the success is relative. I'll, I'll say first and foremost, banks is probably the smallest, uh, we have prob- we're like the artisanal mezcal brand of Bacardi as far as our <laughs> our commercial success. We do clean up usually at a lot of the rum awards where there's blind tasting going on. But I would say that from a the success we have enjoyed and we have enjoyed a lot of a lot of it. Unfortunately, not enough commercial success yet. I think it's come from identifying where there are opportunities in the market. And I think that as people are can thinking of their career or as people are thinking of perhaps things like like these products, which interest me so much, I think a lot of my process and success starts with looking at what do bartenders or sommeliers or chefs or restaurateurs or, or real estate people or, or people who are investors, what do they need? What do they, what do they have? What do they have too much of? What are, the, what are the things they have that they enjoy or they don't enjoy? And what would they either like if they knew they could have it? Or what would they like a better version of? And I think that that's where I spend a lot of my time is thinking about what people have and don't have, what people like and don't, don't like, and figuring out where there's an opportunity. And I think with respect to banks, I had a a couple of very interesting opportunities to work on a spirit brand before Banks came along. But I felt like in 2008, when I first kind of really got deeply involved, we'd seen vodka and gin and, you know, gin and whiskey were emerging at that point. And vodka obviously had been monolithically huge for decades. And tequila and mezcal were also obviously on their way up. And I felt that rum was the one... Base spirit category that had so much potential, but was really sort of being left behind and not really considered something to, to savor and sip and, and to make great drinks with. Most of the drinks that were being made with it, the, the modifiers were being used to cover up the rum as opposed to really sort of center it. So I've found with banks for my 10 years on the brand that, you know, in, I'm, a, I'm a rising tide lifts all the boats type of person, whether it comes with my career in the industry or with my career with rum. And I've and I've seen rums sort of tide rise, especially as as companies like Bacardi have really like looked in in into their own company and realized what great rums they make, and started putting out some of these just stellar, you know, smaller like the Fecundo, the Facundo collection, where it's just like I think people oftentimes think of Bacardi, you know, for its sort of for Bacardi Silver, which is a great rum, but there are, there are some other rums that they make which sit right up next to the best whiskeys and brandies in the world. And and I think that was, it's been exciting Bacardi acquired banks about five years ago. So it's been exciting to be part of not only the rising tide of the industry, but the rising tide within the company.
2: Jim, I, I wanted to mention, how do you think, you know, this is a two part question, I guess, in the spirit of, of, of national rum month, but how do you feel your expertise? You were coming off, you know, kind of some pretty big awards, obviously, um, writing a book, awesome career so far, you all of a sudden jump into rum. I guess as a listener, as a student, how do you feel, how do, how do you feel that you added value to that? I mean, when I taste this rum, it's, it's complex. It has depth, it has character. You know, some companies run away from that. And I really love the way banks just acts in cocktails, right? It's, 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 it has its own personality. So I really love, I just want to know how, how you kind of you know jumped in there and you kind of started tasting all this and saying like, yes, this is a good fit for me. I was looking at a podcast. I-, I was listening to a podcast. I know I should have mentioned it. It's um, okay. You but- can
0: mention other ones. We're not the <laughs> only How ones, I right. built
2: this. And one of the, one of the uh, guests said, I built this product for myself to taste it for myself. I want it to be something that I love. Is that kind of the way you think of banks?
3: That's the way I think of all my products is that, it starts off as something you do for yourself that you want for yourself. And then hopefully if you have, if you're lucky and have good timing, you'll, you'll find other people who are also thinking of, of, along the same lines. I mean, one of the things that I believe is that we all sort of, I don't believe in like, I I do believe in the maxim that there's nothing new under the sun. So I, I do believe that like, there's this, uh, this sounds very like hippy dippy, so I apologize in advance for saying this, but I believe that zeitgeist, meaning this fancy German word for the spirit of the times, is something where we're all creators or, or entrepreneurs are all sort of point connectors and dot connectors. And I feel like there's a lot of creative entrepreneurial people who are you know, examining the, the sort of zeitgeist or what's going on in the world. And then connecting dots that relate to what people want, what people need, what will resonate at that time. You know, I think products like St. Germain or um, I think products like just capture that spirit of the times and just they become runaway successes. And so I think with banks that for me, like I said, what my thought process on it really was like, here's a product that, you know, like people love drinking rum drinks, but they, I feel, I felt as a mixologist who focused so much on flavor that like providing a better piece of chicken or a better piece of meat to, to serve that food would sort of be something that bartenders really appreciated. And from a, I guess from a, to speak to rum month and to speak to the category in the industry, I think the value that I put out there, there, one of the sort of things that gave me the most anxiety as I entered the category is so many people in the category actually grew up in rum. They grew up, you know, working or living near the plantations. They, they, they distill, they age. I mean, when you go to Tales or when you, when you go to, you know, Rum Weeks, you're meeting people who make rum, who live rum. It's their life. And I think for me, the value that I add is by no means sim- like similar or parallel to those people I am a user of ROM. And I guess from a music perspective, I describe this. Instead of being like a musician, like I consider these people, I'm a DJ. I don't make the music. I pick the music, put it on the turntable or the CDJ or whatever the DJs use these days. And I play it at the right time, in the right space, at the right moment. So I think it's in, in one of the things I talk a lot about with banks is we don't make banks. We source it and blend it. And, and blending the art of blending is sort of our big. That's what we talk about when we talk about banks. And as a mixologist or as a bartender, that is my skill set. It is taking disparate things from many different places, bringing them together into ideally a delicious compound that is also a storytelling vehicle. Like the Negroni is not just this delicious combination of gin, sweet vermouth, and Campari. It comes with this like amazing story of Count Camilo Negroni and, you know, his life and pursuits. And I think that in addition to creating delicious things, I create storytelling vehicles that become assets in a greater production of people's life. And and I think that's kind of, that's the fun of this sort of work as both a bartender and entrepreneur and sort of someone who works on behalf of this brand.
0: That's awesome. Hey, I I don't know Banks rum that well. I know a lot of other rums. I'm a big rum guy. Um, But so you said you source it and then you blend it. What can you tell us? Like yeah, so essentially,
3: going the backstory on Banks. I was presented four or five different bottles that were lab sample bottles back in 2008. I did what I what I do with every spirit, which I call the Pepsi Challenge, where I sort of narrow it down in a blind tasting to my favorite, and then I sample it next to my benchmarks, and then I use it in the applicable drinks. So 2008, I get a lab sample, or I get four lab samples, pick my favorite, taste them next to the benchmark spirits I stocked at the bar. Then I made them into a rum and Coke, uh, a mojito, and a daiquiri, loved it, and then moved forward with the guys. As far as what I later discovered, what was in that bottle was a blend of rums from Trinidad, Jamaica, Barbados, Guyana, and uniquely this Javanese Batavia Rack, which was very obscure. Like no one had really heard of Batavia Rack for the most part in that time. But what was very cool and timely was um, David Wondrich was releasing his second book, Punch, in 2010. He, in 2007, I believe, he released Imbibe, the biography of Jerry Thomas, which was sort of a landmark book in our in our little cocktail uh, community about the life and times and drinks of Jerry Thomas, and then in 2010 he, he released a, a follow up called Punch: uh, The Lights and Dangers of the Flowing Bowl. And in that book, Batavia Rak appears again and again and again. It's a an Indonesian uh, spirit that is uniquely uh, fermented using Javanese red, mm-hmm. rice, red, red rice cakes, and it creates this kind of like super funky rum akin to uh, Jamaican potstilled rum that in small quantities works a lot like salt on a steak or like sugar in a cup of coffee. It both integrates flavors and enhances and sort of accentuates them. So we call the Batavia Rack in Banks our spice uh, in the sort of like salt, sugar sense. So that's our five island uh, or five origin blend. It's a blend of aged and unaged rums. It's sourced and blended by a firm in Amsterdam that's been doing this for 300 years, bottled in France, and then uh, imported all over the world. Uh, and then we, two years later, we released a, a gold uh, rum called Bank 7 Golden Blend. We used a completely blind tasting process to come up with that blend. And thankfully, for the sake of my failing memory, came up with a rum that had the same five origins as Banks, Five Island, Trinidad, Jamaica, Barbados, Guyana, and Java, with the addition of rums from Panama and Guatemala, which sort of, when you think of gold rum, I oftentimes think of the lighter style of rums that Bacardi puts out. And so that was sort of the inspiration behind that blend.
0: Cool. And I can get this at any liquor store, I'm assuming,
1: ABC, Crown, all those.
3: The, thanks to the hard work of uh, my colleagues at Picardi, yes. Awesome. All right.
1: I loved you talking about creating experiences and, and sharing stories, because that's something that certainly we all as, as teachers, whether it's at school or, or with bartenders or people in the food and beverage industry, try to do, because I think that resonates with, with, with customers. So love to hear that.
3: Well, I mean, um, it's interesting that if you think about per I remember reading a couple different books about perfume. And if you think about the way a perfume, a certain perfume, like like maybe the first, your first love, like a, perfu- a perfume or a cologne will like take you back to your grandmother or to a first love or mm-hmm. to, you know, someone you knew many years ago. Like I have that same experience with cigars. Uh, the chairman of Bank's, uh, smokes a lot of very good cigars. And every time I smell a cigar, I think of Arno. But but I think that flavor and aroma are are ways in which we connect our, are, our memories. And I think that as chefs and as bartenders, our ability to create distinctively powerfully flavored dishes or, or drinks is a beautiful way for us to connect to positive and life-affirming memories. A lot of us, when we get married, when we celebrate anniversaries or birthdays or even funerals or graduations, we'll accompany that with a nice drink or with a trip to a restaurant or to a bar. And we'll, we'll try new things that we maybe don't always get a sense to try for special occasions. And our memories of special occasions, weddings and anniversaries and engagements get hung together with food and drink. And I think that is, yeah. I always say to young people that you know, at a very base level, we're in the food and beverage business, which isn't bad. I mean, I love food and beverage, but at a higher level, we're in the people business. We're in the relationship business. And at its, at its like tippy top, I feel like we're in the memory business. And if everything, Mm. if we get food and beverage, right, we, if we treat people, right. And if the flavors are memorable enough, we can, we can sort of always be associated with these momentous moments in people's lives, which is powerful.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and you shared your, your epiphany from the first cocktail you had. What about uh, uh, sharing an interesting food memory with our audience? Um, food yeah, epiphany.
3: I feel like the food is interesting because I didn't, I guess I grew up, my parents both worked two jobs growing up, and food was something that, we loved food, but, but there was always a struggle for time to prepare it and time to gather to enjoy it. Uh, my dad worked nights as well as day's. Uh, So my my memories with my family's food was sort of like just my mom getting the food on the table after finishing school before my dad had to go work the second shift. But I do remember when I was younger, my grandmother had a... a, She retired to Michigan and had her own garden. And she designed her kitchen like around, I think, probably Julia Child's and had lots of copper pans hanging from the wall. And I remember uh, a lot of the food that she made us. And so I would just say that whether food... I, I think food is a loaded term. I think in our in our world today, whether it's something that we we go to for sustenance or for fuel or for luxury or for just connection to other humans, I would say that I have all forms of those memories, thankfully. And I would just say that um, I, I think it's important to. to As I've gotten older, I think when I was younger, because I didn't grow up in fine dining and I didn't have any access or connection to fine dining, that when I got a little older and especially when people started taking me out to fancy meals, I started associating food with cuisine and with fancy food. And I think as I've left New York and stepped away from it and, and as we cook most of our meals now at home, I've begun to sort of democratize dining and democratize food back to a place that doesn't either elevate restaurant food from home food or food for fuel for food for for inspiration to me i think it's all it's all food and they're and they're all valid and they're all have powerful and impactful connections to memories if that makes sense i guess i'm trying to find ways as i get older to to not just focus on delicious ethereal singular things and try to focus more on the everyday a lot of times people ask me what's your favorite meal or what's your favorite drink and I find that like having been very fortunate enough to travel the world and to eat some fancy places and drink with some fancy people that if I were to say that, oh, well, obviously my favorite drink is like such and such a drink that Colin Field served me at the Ritz Bar in, you know, in in Paris, that that saying that to someone who's never been to Paris, doesn't know who Colin Field is, doesn't know about the Ritz Bar. Sounds a
0: little pretentious, we're going to say. sounds
3: pretentious. And so that question, which was ideally meant to make connections with others, might actually totally isolate them and make, make them think that you're a total prick. And so I, I only my, like
0: my ice made from special glacial water.
3: Exactly. So I, I think that the, the thing I always answer that question with is, you know, that I try to enjoy every moment with the people I'm with and try to look at every drink, whether it's uh, the watery beer that you guys were threatening to talk about in this interview earlier <laughs> or fancy drinks at Colin Field's bar. You know, be where you're at. Be, be with who you're with and enjoy what's on your plate and in your glass because we only live once.
1: Oh, I get that same question on the on the chef front. What's my favorite foods? And, and I think students are often surprised when I say it's pizza, chocolate chip cookies and nachos. So, yeah. <laughs> but the people that know me are not surprised at all.
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, I wanted to actually follow up on bar owning and bar stuff. So, you know, I did some uh, Google stalking. So, Cyber stalking never hurt anyone when you're in a a podcast. Maybe if it was an ex-girlfriend, but that'd be weird. Um, So I did read some articles that you did, and one of the things said, your three things of a good bar are eye contact, cleanliness, and service. So, um, you know, these are just like no-brainers. You don't even think about them, but I've also been into plenty of bars where they don't take their um, eyes up from the newspaper, and I saw a cockroach running across the floor, and just the surface is crap. But John and Ben, Brian, and I really do love a, um, a dive bar. So sometimes those dive bars, you kind of like because they are a little dirty, and so t-
3: are you a anti dive bar kind of guy or? So I believe, first of all, dive bar is a great term and and i think that it it's sort of it doesn't in my opinion actually refer to any specific like the the characteristics of a dive bar are somewhat amorphous and i would say that the word i'll think of dive more as like a a place that you love to go to more than a um dirty sort of like hole-in-the-wall bar and i and i guess what i would what i would counter is that like no bar should be dirty Whether it's a sports bar, a tavern, a restaurant, a cocktail bar. Um, I I remember one of, something I'll never forget. This famous, uh, at the time, guy named Stanislav Varda did a cocktail seminar for us years ago when PDT opened. And we were all sitting around him, and he was gonna teach us the Japanese hard shake, which at the time was a big thing. And all these like nerdy mixologists, you know, like eating out of this guy's hand. And he asked everybody, he said, what is the most important part of this bar? What's the most important feature of this bar? And we all like looked around and some people said the front door because obviously that's the first point of contact or some people said the phone because maybe that's even more first contact. Some people said the bar, the tables, you know, blah, you know, all these things. And after everyone guessed, Stan said, you're all wrong. He said, it's the toilet. And he said, the reason why it's the toilet is because the cleanliness of the bathroom will tell you everything about the way the bar owner thinks of your guests because all of you will end up using the toilet if you spend enough time in the bar. And I would say that the one of the things that like a lot of bar people I think don't we, we gloss over it because we we all I think we're like Tom Cruise in the back of our minds, especially us old guys. But Bartenders are basically glorified janitors. And, and anyone who works in the restaurant business, chefs are too. <laughs> I see John smiling. Uh, and I feel like anyone who doesn't acknowledge that or doesn't realize that is just missing like a huge part of, of, of the game. And so I feel like the, the attention to detail that we spend cleaning uh, is an act of respect to our patrons. And that's whether you're in a fancy place or in a dive.
1: Yeah, cer- certainly today with COVID and that there better not be anyone at a bar or a restaurant that's sacrificing on sanitation and yeah. safety and all of those things. So,
0: Well, we normally finish up here with uh, Brian doing his speed rail, but I, he's not here, so no speed rail this week.
1: I
3: give long, slow answers, so that's probably good. <laughs> it's fine. Um, do
0: we have any closing remarks, uh, Gabe, Mr. Arrutia?
2: No, Jim, thank you so much as always. I can't wait to have you back in Miami, but um, you don't have a favorite cocktail, but what are you drinking at your house uh, when you're with uh, the wife and and just hanging out at the house? What is your drink of choice nowadays?
3: You know, punch has gone, you know, I mentioned Batavia, Rack, and Banks earlier. And I think punch is the one drink that I feel like everybody is sleeping on because you can prepare a bowl of punch and, you know, hours before your party. And I always say to people like, if you want to enjoy your own party, don't make people cocktails. The better your drinks are, the longer you'll end up <laughs> stuck behind your own bar. Mm-hmm. Prepare a bowl of mm-hmm. punch. Get a beautiful block of ice and bowl, and let people serve themselves. And and recently, for a book I'm working on, I recipe, recipe tested a milk punch. And mm-hmm. clarified milk punches are like shelf stable forever. Like they're literally shelf stable, like whiskey. So right now we have a couple mason jars of clarified milk punch in our fridge, Genius. which are sitting pretty. So I would say that, you know, for, you know, special occasions, mixing up a bowl of punch and for, um, if you want a cocktail, but don't want to make it, you know, a bottled Negroni is, is great to have around, but we have some bottled milk punch sitting around that, that makes everyone pretty happy.
2: And, and Jim, you have this awesome, uh, uh, punch video, very uninstructional video where you talk about, you know, the sacrum and everything in between. And that video is online, um, for the listeners and the students, if you want to check it out, it's, you know, you're right. It's, it's so simple to make and it's, it's so complex and you can use, I mean, you use banks and it's, it's just this cocktail that really just blows your mind. So it's cool There's to have. that
3: old Bayesian sort of one of sour, two of sweet, three of strong, four of weak. And it generally works, you know? So, and I find that, you know, it's, it's sessionable. People are liking low ABV offerings more and more. It, it sort of, it hits all the boxes for me.
2: I wanted to ask you one more thing. You you studied African-American studies. You got a degree in it. You have a Black Lives Matter um, sign behind you. What's going on in our industry? How, How are we evolving? How do you think it's going to evolve? You know, we kind of are in the middle of this, you know, pandemic and this movement, and we kind of hear one over the other, and we hear politics. Politics aside, where do you see our industry taking this, and how far can we go with this?
3: Well, I think it's interesting. Our industry is, in many ways, the canary in the coal mine of American culture and politics. And a lot of, a lot of times, what happens in our country happens to us first, because our our industry is is heavily populated by immig- is immigrants. I mean, immigrants for the most part fuel our economy in America, and they definitely fuel the restaurant business. And so. The reckoning we're seeing in our society, both culturally and politically, is something that has been bubbling up in our industry for years. And I think that it is is something that I always remind myself that if it's a larger cultural societal thing, that, that we shouldn't try to solve it ourselves. We have to look to leaders outside of our industry to help us solve it, especially with legislation right now. But I think that what's going on is a reckoning over our history and what what has been acknowledged and what has not been acknowledged. And what I hope is that the sort of stress test of the last four years will create um, a society that is more aware of what we've taken for granted all this time. We've taken people's hard work and contributions for granted for far too long. People like myself have gotten credit for, for a lot of that. And I think that Hopefully what we'll see in the future is a, a bigger table for more people to sit at, to eat more, and, and to have their voices heard. And I think that that's what, you know, there's that saying of if you're not sitting at the table, you're on the table. And I think that there's a lot of people who have been on the table for a long time who want to sit at the table. And I hope that what people will see is that they will not, we can all eat. There's enough food for all of us. And I'm sort of excited someone who's been a leader of this industry for a long time. There are a lot of smart, motivated, enthusiastic young people in our industry who I'm excited to see emerge and, and take us to the next level.
0: That is a beautiful sentiment. And, you know, it, it's been tough for, well, it's been tough forever. And then the last four years, you said, and, and especially the last few months that. There is a lot of inequity. So fingers crossed that we can, you know, move on and, and do better. Uh, John Noble Massey, do you have any closing ideas? Well, or
1: I I will I'll, I'll kind of just add my two cents with the the Times. I think Florida International University, my our dean always reminds us and and, and Stephen Mall always reminds us, it's Florida International University. <laughs> and so whether you're using international blends with ROMs or you're sitting down across from the table with a friend, a colleague sharing a drink or sharing some of their food from a different culture. I think those are the things that break down any barriers uh, in, in communication. Once you share a a good cocktail with somebody, some of their, 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 their food uh, you know, different, different cultural, then that starts to break down those, those barriers. So we certainly want to encourage that and encourage you all to, to, to do the same. Thanks so much, Jim, for enjoying and sharing your, your stories with us here. We appreciate it very much.
3: This honor is all mine.
0: And I'm gonna finish up by saying, please follow us on Two Bar Stools and a Knife on Facebook and the Bacardi Center of Excellence. They are two different pages with different posts and they all have some great information. Follow us on Instagram. I'm Professor underscore and Dodge. B.P. Connors is unavailable. John Noble Massey, all one word. Gabe, what's your uh, handle on Instagram? Look, smell, taste. Look, smell, smell, taste. Yes. And Jim, are you on the IG? I'm on... Mi- I'm mi- at Mixography. At Mixography. So follow us all there. Okay. Please give we will us another stand. review so we're not just stuck at five. <laughs> we are listened to around the country, around the world, so we're pretty excited about this podcast. And,
1: and thanks to Gabe for filling in for Brian. Brian did it, so. Good to see you. Yep. Thank you. Yep. Good to see you all.
0: And don't forget... Um, right after this program. If you want to listen to our Bacardi Talks with Elizabeth Blau, you can listen to it here. And other than that, thanks, guys. Have a good one.
1: Have a great
2: week.
0: Ah, Adios. Have a great week.